0: This is a production of DermCast TV brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. It's nice sometimes to have the liberty to talk about things we don't usually talk about, like managing how you're dealing with patients and trying to get across what you need to get across. And I'm going to do the same thing, and I'm going to talk about ethics. Actually, you're going to talk about ethics. We're going to talk about ethics. Uh, For some of us, like in the state of Texas, I have to do an hour of ethics learning a year to maintain my, my licensure. So maybe this might actually help someone, even if it doesn't help you. My goal is, just like Jocelyn, was to help you think about phrasing things to patients and helping you to help them better. My goal is to get you to think about some things. There's no right or wrong answer. Everybody should have a clicker, an audience response. If you don't, please, please get one. They're on the bins at the ends of the table. And I'm going to go through some scenarios. And This is based on an actual survey that was done. Actually, it's been done three times. 10 years ago, about five years ago, and about two years ago. Some responses, it's a big survey. I'll show you the demographics in a second. It's 23,000, 24,000 individuals, and in all fields of medicine. Some responses are pretty consistent from 10 years ago, five years ago, a couple years ago. And it's interesting that some responses have changed over time. You would think ethics is ethics, right? But it isn't. Ethics is a living and breathing thing, and it changes over the span of generations, sometimes quicker than that. So you'll see. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to tell you how we're going to do this. It's very important for you all to participate so we get a feel, is I'm gonna give you an ethical dilemma. I'm gonna show you how it relates to dermatology. Some of these are kind of loosely related to dermatology. Allow me a little bit of leeway, but they are important ethical questions for medicine as as a whole. Then I'm gonna give you the pros and cons of each answer. Would you do this? Yes or no. I'm gonna give you pros and cons that were submitted by the people who originally took this survey, and then you're going to vote yes or no. I'm going to make these very straightforward. There's no equivocation. Do the best you can, even though you might think, well, maybe, but not really, yes or no. But you got to do. You have to commit, yes or no. Then I'm going to show you how the surveys responded, and you can think about. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. No right or wrong. You can think about your response individually, our response as a group, compared to a large segment of medical providers, 20 plus thousand individuals. I'm gonna apologize for one thing. Some of the write-ups, these weren't in doc form, they were images and it just was too hard to redo them all. So some of the write-ups, will use the word physician I'm not intending for this to be, you know, these are physicians and you guys are PAs. We all have the same ethics. We all do the same darn thing. We're all part of a team. We're here because of our patients. So if it says physician, just ignore that. It's provider. It just was too hard to change all these images, so I have to retype them all and I didn't take typing in high school and, (laughs) well, that's enough of that. (laughs) This is my typing skill. So that's that. Just a little preamble. So what is medical ethics? It's a system of values common to the medical profession that leads to an application of those values to our daily practice of medicine, which leads to standards of behavior concerning relationships with patients, with each other, and with society. That's medical ethics. There are six principles of medical ethics. Always keep the best interest of the patient in mind. First thing, do no harm. The patient has the right to accept or to refuse. That's what informed consent is based upon. You treat on the merit of the illness, not upon the fact that someone is rich and famous or that someone bribes you. You treat based upon the illness. The patient and the provider both have the right to dignity. And that goes two ways. I just want to stop for just a second. When I talk at the beginning of every, because I'm in an academic institution, the beginning of every July, we sort of have our orientation. And I sit there with my staff, with my PAs, with my nurses, with my receptionists in a big room, and I tell them, It's our job to treat our patients politely, overlook occasional things they may say we don't like. We are there to serve, but by the same token, we are not there to be punching bags. And you are not to tolerate physical or verbal abuse when it crosses the line. So dignity goes two ways. And the other thing is honesty, of course. Try not to lie to your patients. Where does this come from? Tradition. That's the way it's always been and that's the way it's always going to be. But it isn't true. Sometimes it isn't that way generations later. Authority. That's the way I was taught to do it. Or that's the law. And there are laws that govern some things we do, right? It makes sense to behave that way. It's reasonable. It's the moral thing to do. That's a tough one, because morality sometimes can be, in that sense, a religious morality can sometimes be murky and controversial. Are any of these absolute? And the answer is, sort of, I mean, the law is the law. You don't wanna, you're not gonna take out a gun and shoot the patient because you don't like the way they're looking at you, right? That's homicide, if you kill them. So law is the law, but a lot of these others aren't absolute. Remember, there's always potential for conflict. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. Just because we shouldn't, maybe doesn't mean that we can't. It goes two ways. And so, you know, it's so easy to say, this is right and this is wrong. I think it's my only soapbox statement for the whole, the whole hour, is I think that's what's wrong in politics. You know, People say, it's this way, and they're wrong. And that's unfortunate, because I don't think it is always right and wrong. I think it's shades of gray. You might pick the number 50 if you like that. But it's shades of gray, and we try and work in the gray, and we try and make things reasonable as best we can. Okay, so this was the survey, 2% were dermatology providers, 24,000, that's how many it was, took this survey, and there are lots of ethical points in medicine, and if I gave you a blank piece of paper and asked you to write those down, you'd put most of these down there, but that really isn't derm-centered. We don't really think too much about euthanasia, Um, although I will ask you, the very last question will be about that, and there's a reason to ask you about that, not because it really impacts too much what we do directly, but it's interesting, uh, the, the answers you'll give. Brain death, who gets organ transplants? How do we approach that? Do we get stem cells from the same tired 43 strains or we, can we get them elsewhere? Um, abortion, You know, maybe for most of us in healthcare, we don't see that as a moral dilemma, but some people do, even in healthcare see that as the right of life, it's a a problem. Universal genotyping, do you know in Iceland, it's a small country, 300 and something thousand people, every single person is genotyped. And they keep that and they use that for medical research. In the US, it isn't that we don't have the resources now because it's not that expensive as it used to be, it's that we're all afraid that our genotype could be used against us. We're afraid it'll be leaked or it'll be bought. And an employer might not hire you because you have the genotype that suggests you're gonna get cancer or you're gonna develop diabetes. Or you might not get insurance because your genotype suggests that you're gonna be sick some way and you're gonna cost the insurance company. Rightfully so, I'm afraid. But it's not like it can't be done. Maybe we should be doing it. But it's an ethical dilemma. And then, of course, as resources shrink, How do we spend our our shrinking resources? How do we allocate them? How do we apportion them? Who gets what? So these are all major ethical dilemmas. I'm gonna touch on a couple of them. But then there are other ones I think that are more applicable to us. And those are the ones I'm I'm going to touch upon the most. So here's number one. So get your audience response clickers ready. Would you ever give life-sustaining therapy if you believed it to be futile? So this was as close as I could get. These are both patients with metastatic melanoma, widely metastatic, brain, liver, lung, bones, and also as visible to us, cutaneous metastases, widely spread, metastatic melanoma, as an example. So the pros and cons, I told you I'd share those with you, and this is, these were responses elicited from the people who were being surveyed. The pros, you never know what will happen. The family often needs to see this effort, this life-sustaining therapy, if you, they can then let go. They see you've done everything possible, you've kept them alive, but now they can finally let go. The cons. If the outcome is blatantly obvious, those patients I showed you are going to die of their metastatic melanoma. It's blatantly obvious. Why waste valuable, scarce resources? And you will see that the pros and cons, whether you will believe or agree with one side more than another, you will see the pros and cons are always, at least in the moment, both reasonable and both somewhat logical, sometimes emotionally positive, but it's not like you can say pro and con, pros wrong and cons right and vice versa. So I'm gonna give you the pros and cons for every one of these dilemmas. So now I'm gonna ask you, would you ever give life-sustaining therapy if you believed that the patient, it was futile and the patient's gonna die? Yes or no? Okay, so 16% of you said the Reds, no, right? Is that correct? Okay, so 16% of you said no, 84% of you said yes. Now let me show you what the survey said. And don't get mad at me, please. There's a third answer the survey people were allowed to give. I'm not giving you that option. (laughs) Don't get it, I'm sorry because I want to make it very clear. The majority of you clearly said yes, you would give life-sustaining therapy even if you knew it was futile. So here's how the surveys, they got it, it depends. (laughs) I'm not giving you an it depends. And it turns out if you actually then drill deeper, the it depends people split about 50-50. They lean toward yes or they lean towards no. So you take half of the it depends and you add it to the yeses and no's if you want to make it black and white. So here, take about 20% and add it. 55% said yes, give or take. 44% said no. So they agreed with you. The majority were still yes, but it was by a simple majority, 55%, whereas here it was an overwhelming majority. To me, that says you're sort of compassionate people and you would still give life-sustaining therapy. But there's another side to the coin. Are you wasting scarce resources? And my point in doing this is really, again, there's no right or wrong. And I'm not gonna take sides except on one of them. There's there's no right or wrong. It's to make you think about how you think about these issues, how it modifies or doesn't, your patient care. There are a couple that are really gnarly and they do directly affect what we do. Okay, remember that ethical responses may change. So widely metastatic melanoma was a death sentence. If I'd have showed you those pictures five years ago, those people were gonna die really, really, really soon. But not now. You heard some talks about melanoma during this this conference. And we have multiple classes of drugs and then combinations in twos and even threes of different classes of drugs, the BRAFs and the MEXs. So we have ways of treating metastatic melanoma and some people who would have died five years ago, no doubt about it, will now survive. And some will actually be cured miraculously. And I'm gonna give you one other personal anecdote. So I wrote up a patient who came in with a primary melanoma that was 12 inches across. It was like a little personal pizza. And it was this thick, and I'm not exaggerating. On his back, he came in because the blood was on his shirt and he couldn't take that anymore. He felt perfectly fine. He had metastases in the liver, metastases in the lung, not the brain or the bones. We didn't do, we had general surgery, at least remove this big, huge, bulky tumor. He was given some IL-2 and some interferon, this was in the days before the drugs that we have now, basically as palliation. Do you know he's alive and well to this day? with no evidence of disease. So, sometimes things are beyond our control. I don't know who's pulling the strings there, but he's alive and well. And he was told to get his affairs in order, we were doing palliative therapy. He's alive and well, with no evidence of disease. Well over a decade. So, you never know. And then, as I said, things change, which may alter the way we think about uh, approaching some of these things. Okay. Would you devote scarce or costly resources to a younger patient, this is getting a little trickier, rather than to one who was older, but not facing imminent death. So you're not having to save a life versus having to treat something. They're not gonna die, but You've got a younger patient, older patient competing for resource. Okay, hard. This is a hard thing to really apply to dermatology. I devised a crazy scenario. You're in a rural hospital somewhere with a limited supply of Rituxan. Are you going to give it to a 60-plus or 70-plus or 80-plus-year-old person who's flaring with pemphigus, and this is sort of the cordial last resort, versus a 16-year-old with B-cell lymphoma? or rituximab as the treatment of choice. It's a stretch, I know. But I think the basic premise, the basic ethical premise is still an important one. So pros and cons. Longer life expectancy should receive priority. In other words, you would devote scarce or costly resources to a younger patient instead of an older patient. We already do that nationally with organ transplants. So there's a precedent. The con, there's no guarantee that the young patient's going to live longer or to be valuable to society. One should not deprive seniors of health care just because they're old. Again, both arguments have some merit to them, right? So I'm going to ask you would you ever devote scarce or costly resources to a younger patient rather than an older one? and the older one's not facing imminent death. Yes, you would devote scarce or costly resources to a younger patient, or no, you wouldn't necessarily devote those resources just because of age to a younger patient. What do you think? Okay, so 60-30 split, 60% of you 30% of you said, or almost 40% of you said no, and 60% of you said yes. So what did the survey say nationally? Here's what the survey said nationally. Yes, 27. No, 39. Take half of that 35, or about 17% and add it. So you've got no's have the plurality there. Yeses are... Still substantial, but lag behind a little bit. So let me tell you, this is my only one where I'm going to take kind of a stand on it. I'm older. I'm still useful to society. I'm here you know, trying to teach you guys something. <laughs> Don't you want to keep me alive? I mean, here's, here's the thing. It then becomes a slippery slope. And that's what I want those of you who said, yes, you would devote scarce or costly resources to the younger person instead of the older person. I want you to just think about this. When is it too old? 60, 65, 67, 70? You know, how do you pick that? And then here's the real slippery slope of thinking about age-related allocation of resources. I'm not going to mention names. But, you know, there's the Independent Payment Advisory Board in Obamacare that's never been actually activated. But the theory is that the president has the power to appoint whatever it is, 16, 17 people to this board that will, in secret, decide what Medicare will pay for and Medicare won't pay for, and it takes an act of Congress, literally, to overturn their decisions. There was an individual, without naming names, who was being bandied about to be the chairman of that independent payment advisory board. That's for Medicare. But interestingly, he had written an article in Lancet that said we shouldn't devote resources to people over 60 because they have a a limited life, life expectancy. But the other side of the coin to me is what was frightening. In that article, he also said that people under 10, we shouldn't devote resources to because they haven't had education, and they're not useful to society. So think about it. That's a very slippery slope, because you can start using justifications to deny care. Would you not want to save a two-year-old because they haven't had education yet, and they're not useful to society? So think about it. It's the only one I'm really... I have a feeling, a major feeling about. All right. I have feelings about all of them, but I won't express them. Maybe I will. It is, ever, is it ever acceptable to perform unnecessary procedures due to malpractice concerns? Oh, this is hitting home, isn't it? So think about this. When you give Dapsone, how many of you order a G6PD? Yeah. Almost everybody, right? Because we're trained to do that. Because we want to make sure they're not going to hemolyze. Do you know nowhere in the world basically do they do that except for here? And you know why? Because G6PD deficiency is less than 4% of the human race. And if you follow their blood counts, the CBC is a lot less expensive, and they start to hemolyze, you can stop the dapsone and their hemolysis will stop. We do it here primarily primarily as a medical legal defense. You don't have to do it. And dapsone is widely used in the world to treat what disease we don't have much of here, Hansen's disease. They don't get a G6PD on anybody. Only we do. And we do it because this is a litigious society. And here's another example, biopsying an obvious subcare to prove that it's not a melanoma. Don't you trust your eyes and your education and your experience? Do you have to biopsy everyone? If you do and in the back of your mind, you know pretty darn well that's a seb care and you're doing it for medical legal defense reasons. So we do do this. We do do things like this. Pros and cons. Pro, it's acceptable to perform, quote, unnecessary procedures. Medicine is not an exact science. You only know that a test or procedure is unnecessary when the results are available. Hmm? And the cons, defensive medicine is an excuse for ignorance. It's an embarrassing alibi. (laughs) What do you think, really? Is it a wasteful thing to the medical system? So is it acceptable to perform, quote, unnecessary, in quotes, procedures due to malpractice concerns? What do you think? Yes. It's acceptable to perform unnecessary procedures due to malpractice concerns, or no, it's not acceptable. Also keep in mind that sometimes the way the question is phrased a little bit affects your your answer to some extent. So 20%, this is an 80-20 split. So the large majority of you Uh, say the minority of you say no it's not acceptable but the large majority of you say yes it is acceptable so what did the survey nationally these are the results the ones I'm showing you now are from two years ago so they're the most recent split the 22 11 in each no it's not acceptable 66 so they agree with you but there's still a substantial number who say yes you know so is it necessary, is it not necessary? Do you know when it's necessary? You know, think about it. Think about your use of resources. Luckily in dermatology, we're not talking about getting a CAT scan just because I wanna get a CAT scan, which is gonna be $1,200, you know, or more. Okay, this, this happens. I will say this happened in my office not that long ago. Luckily, not to me, one of my colleagues. Is it acceptable to cover up or not reveal a mistake if that mistake doesn't cause harm to the patient? Remember the second part of it. So what's the, here's the applicability to dermatology. You do a biopsy. You're pretty certain it's a benign nevus or a seborrheic keratosis. You're really, you're, you're just making sure. You read your own slides or they're read in your practice, and lots of us are in that situation. But during processing, the tissue is lost. Do you just sort of not reveal that and tell the patient, oh, there's nothing to worry about because you were really pretty certain it was nevus or sebaceous, Anyhow, you're just really, really making sure. Or do you tell them, it's lost, sorry. Here's another one. A patient has an allergic reaction, they come to the office, you want to give them a shot of Benadryl and accidentally they get a shot of vitamin B12. You call the patient up, the patient says, oh, I'm doing a lot better. They didn't get the Benadryl, they got B12. Do you say, oh, that's so good because we gave you the wrong shot. So glad you're doing well. Or do you just say, I'm so glad you're doing well, Mm, end of sentence. (laughs) All right, so do you, is it acceptable basically to cover up or avoid revealing a mistake if that mistake is not gonna cause the patient harm? So pros and cons, is it acceptable? With absolutely no harm done, why undermine the patient's confidence? And innocuous, harmless errors are fodder for plaintiff's attorneys. So yes, it is acceptable. No, it's not acceptable. Con, honesty is the foundation of the provider-patient relationship and the patients appreciate honesty. Always be honest, always tell the truth. Scout's honor, right? So what do you think? Is it acceptable to avoid revealing, I won't put a cover up, avoid revealing a mistake if the mistake is not gonna cause the patient any harm Yes, it's acceptable. No, it's not acceptable. You should always be honest. Survey says, okay, no, it's not acceptable, 70%. But 30% of you think if there's no harm done, no foul, no harm, no foul, I'm just not going to say much just lay low. You know, no right or wrong. And you heard the pros or cons, you know, sometimes it's wise to be honest. You never know when it's going to come back and bite you. By the same token, being honest can come back and bite you. So I'm not going to take a stand, yes or no. You all have expressed yourselves clearly in the majority of no. Okay. Is it acceptable? Here's a wonderful one. Is it ever acceptable to become involved in a romantic or sexual relationship with a patient? Okay. I see you cringing. (laughs) (laughs) Without further comment. Okay. So pros. There's a pro here. If a match is made in heaven, shows up in the office, and the relationship's foundation is love, so be it. Or, this is so creepy, it's beyond unethical. A patient is vulnerable and easily taken advantage of. Okay, but there were pros, so you know at least some percentage said, yes, it's acceptable. So. What do you think? Is it acceptable to become involved in a romantic or sexual relationship with a patient? Yes, or no way? Or it depends how much money they have. I don't know. know Okay, all right. We've got 11% that said yes. (laughs) It wasn't just 1%, it's 11%. Okay, and then the majority of you, almost 90%, say, oh, no way. Okay, so here's how it was answered. 1% said yes, even if a current patient. 22% said yes if they stopped being a patient at least six months ago. Like, oh, my God, I'm in love with you, but you're a patient. Stop being a patient and call me six months and a day from now. (laughs) Okay, you know. 68% said no, and 9% still were hedging. It depends (laughs) how good-looking, how much money, you know, they live in the right part of town. So, you know, if you take half of the, it depends, that's 4.5%, and the 22% who said yes if they stopped being a patient, that's 26%, and then you add the 1% who unequivocally said yes, that's 27%. So a quarter of the respondents, in one way or another, said, OK, when this same question was given 10 years ago, there was 0% who said yes or it depends, and 100% said no. So over the last 10 years, <laughs> there's been a little bit more acceptability of things, I guess. OK, so there it is. Just. So, you know, majority of your, those 11% of you who vote, yeah, voted yes, it's acceptable, Maybe ahead of the game. And if we did this 10 years from now, maybe you'd be the visionaries. Okay. Now, this is an important one. Would you drop insurers who don't pay well, even though some long-time patients would no longer be able to see you? This is reality. I mean, it is. Our institution dropped Cigna because when they came out with their new rates, they were so low, it didn't pay to put the patient on the table. So if this happens. Insurers will readjust what they pay. Would you drop an insurer if they don't pay well, even though it meant you would lose some patients, including patients who've seen you for a very long time? And any one of this might face this choice at some point in time. Pros and cons. The practical reality, I would drop insurers, is running a medical office is a business. If I lose money, what do I have to do? I'm going to drop staff or cut corners. Who's that helping? And the con is it's a privilege and an obligation to care for others. If it meant too many of my patients leaving by dropping an insurer, I would somehow cope. Again, there, there is merit to both sides of that argument, isn't there? So I'm curious, what would you all do? And I know you may not have that final decision, but many of you work in a way very closely in your practice and you have input. So you might be asked this someday, or there might be an office meeting or a clinic meeting to discuss that this is a a reality question. Would you drop insurers that don't pay well, even though some patients would have to stop seeing you? Yes, I would drop insurers, no I wouldn't. So the answer, the no answer, is 23%, and the yes answer is 77%. So the overwhelming majority of you would drop insurers that now are paying so little that it's economically a problem. It threatens the viability of the practice, the clinic, et cetera, et cetera. So what did they say in the survey? Yes, only 27% in this survey. No, 41%. Give another 16% to both. So the nose are 57 percent, and your nose, I can't go back. I guess so. Your nose were 23 um, percent. So you know, there's no right and wrong. There you go. Your nose were 23 percent right. So there's no right or wrong, but some groups would be less likely than others, and you know, I mean, you have to have to think about that. Okay. This one to me is the most important one of them all. Is it ever acceptable to overstate or falsify, I say creative, a patient's condition when submitting claims, not so much claims, because that's really illegal, you'll get in trouble, but seeking prior authorization. Let me give you an example. Here's your patient with psoriasis of of 3.5% body surface area. But nothing conservative has worked. His insurance plan will allow a biologic only if body surface area is 5%, and it's 3.5%. You think he would benefit from a TNF-alpha biologic, like a TANercept, for example. How do you fill out the preauthorization form? Does that 3.5 become 5.1? I mean, it's real. I've had to face this. This is a little more iffy. Your long-standing and loyal patient, Susan, is very concerned about the fine lines that appear at the corner and under her eyes when she smiles. Her insurance plan will pay for Retin-A. They will if she has adult acne, but they won't pay for Retin-A as a wrinkle remover. You have the pre-authorization form in front of you. Doesn't she get a zit every once in a while? I mean, it's creative prior authorization forms. So pros and cons. If the purpose is to facilitate obtaining needed services or medications, we have to remember that the rules of the payers are not set up for patient's welfare. And we all know that. The rules of the the insurance companies, the payers are designed to ensure a profit for the company. And oh my God. Prior authorizations have become the bane of my existence. Cons, this constitute lying and stealing. <laughs> that respondent clearly had an opinion. You should lose your license if you do that. Again, both sides have merit. So I want to know what you think. Is it acceptable to overstate or creatively complete a prior authorization when submitting a claim or... Or prior authorization form. Yes or no? Okay, the no's are 30% and the yeses are 60, almost 70, so this is a 70-30 split. So the yeses 70%. I applaud you. The 30% who say, no, it's not acceptable to overstate, falsify, or creatively complete a prior authorization form, I applaud you. You have morals and the rest of us don't. But, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, really, there, there's no right or wrong. And I think both sides, on this issue, both sides have a very strong case to be made. And you have to, in your own mind, in your own conscience, with that prior auth form sitting in front of you, Decide whether 4% can become 5%. Decide whether Susan has an acne bump now and again that justifies her Retin-A. And there's no right or wrong. Even though it might be seemingly wrong to overstate, a lot of you would do it. So how did the survey say? Yes, 13%, no, 75% overwhelmingly would not do it. It depends, let's take six and put six out of the 13, so it's about only 20% said yes. And in this group, it was the 68% said yes. And I will tell you, Uncle Teddy would do it, and I've done it. And I-, I sometimes feel bad about it, but then I think, well, if I don't do this, I'm gonna deny the patient something they really need. Not for something trivial like Retin-A for wrinkles, but for other things. And I feel bad when I do it, I'll be honest. But sometimes you just gotta do it. So, But there's no right or wrong. If you say, I will never do that, I think you're a hero. And if you do it, you're like me, <laughs> not a hero. <laughs> okay, this is another good one. Would you ever dismiss a patient who is non-adherent? And every one of us have difficult patients. And they're difficult in different ways, right? Some are argumentative. Some don't seem to listen. Some don't want to. What I'm talking about is the one who's not cooperating. You say, please put this cream on. They come back. I don't know why they even bother coming back, but they do. You all have at least one patient like this. I can guarantee you. They come back, and you say, is your psoriasis better? No. Did you use the last cream I gave you? No. Did you get it? Yes, but it's still in the bathroom. No, I didn't even get it. Then why are you here? Would you dismiss a non-adherent, non-compliant patient? Pros, non-compliance means you are not providing the service. Why waste time and effort on a chronically non-compliant, also called non-adherent, patient? Cons, non-compliance means that you're at fault. You didn't explain it in a proper manner, and therefore the patient is not being compliant or adherent because you didn't do your job. So, question, would you ever dismiss a patient who is not just one visit, but chronically non-adherent? Yes, I would dismiss them. No, I would not. I will just do better. Okay, yes, 65% of you heartless individuals would dismiss a non-adherent patient, Whereas 35% of you very, very touchy-feely people would keep on trying the best you can. You know, uh, Here's what the survey said. <laughs> a third, a third, and a third, and if you split the third, it's still equal. So it was a 50-50 proposition. Uh, this is a really difficult question. Again, there's no right or wrong. You know, Sometimes it's really frustrating, and it's been on the tip of my tongue, like, get out, but I just couldn't quite say it. And so sometimes I keep trying, and it's still frustrating the next time. There's no right or wrong for those of you who would dismiss a a non-adherent, non-compliant patient. Congratulations. For those of you who want to keep on working, congratulations plus condolences. Okay. (laughs) Would you ever undertreat a patient's pain for fear of the patient becoming addicted? Okay, and this has happened to me. I mean, just very recently, not in our office, but to me. Your patient's had herpes zoster, scarring and it's painful. Gabapentin, pregabalin, steroids, 10 unit, nothing works. He calls for the fifth refill on oxycodone. You want to send him to a pain service, but the pain service says, post-zoster neuralgia is a derm problem, your problem. And now it's his fifth refill. And you know, there's been a lot of noise about opiate addiction here lately. It is a major problem in the United States. So, pros and cons, becoming an addict is easy and worse than the pain. There's also the question, is the patient actually selling the narcotics? So yes, they would undertreat or not treat a patient. They wouldn't keep renewing pain meds. Cons, the patient with pain severe enough to require narcotics should be provided with sufficient relief in order to maintain their quality of life. Again, I see the logic in both sides there, don't you? So what would you say? Would you undertreat or not treat, refuse refills on a narcotic? Maybe you gave for post neuralgia, post-operative pain, something like that. You had a good reason to give it in the first place, but now you're not gonna do it. Uh, for fear of the patient becoming addicted. Yes, I would. No, I would just plow on and give them that oxycodone refill. So yes, oh my gosh, overwhelming majority said yes, you wouldn't continue with the narcotics or you would undertreat or you would do something to mitigate against their becoming um, an addict and 13% of you actually have a soft heart and you'd continue a while longer. So I struggled with that. that was my patient and I gave him a real low dose and he wanted his fifth refill and I couldn't get the pain service to see him, just couldn't do it. So what I did was I said, this is your last refill. I'm not giving you any more. I want you to go see a neurologist, and I gave him three different neurologists. Pain service would have been preferable to me, but neurologist also deals with postherpetic neuralgia. And I said, then I want you to tell me what the neuro- call me and tell me what the neurologist says, and we'll work together as a team to try and deal with this. There are other creative ways for those of you who came to my <laughs> creative. Uh, way of dealing with things, radical pearls. I actually used that cryo-analgesia technique that I mentioned there, where you use liquid nitrogen and you spray the affected dermatome six inches away for 30 seconds, like this, and you do it every week and you know four weeks later he was pain-free and the whole problem was solved. So there are still creative ways. You don't have to keep giving narcotics. Short-term, maybe, yes, and that's what I did. The neurologist said he had nothing to offer other than uh, phenol ablation of the affected nerve, in which case he would be chronically numb in that dermatome. And then I had read about that cryoanalgesia and I did that and it worked, hallelujah. But this can be a problem in in derm. Here's what the survey said. No, so the majority of them said they would keep giving pain meds. You all flipped. Majority of you said no, majority here 65 plus another 10 said, no, they wouldn't uh, undertreat. They would give pain meds. So no right or wrong, just interesting. This is important. Think hard before you answer this. Would you report a physician, a friend, a PA, a nurse, an MA? Would you report any of the healthcare team if you knew they seemed to be impaired by alcohol, I'm going to say, or drugs, or illness? You watched how they did their work, and they look impaired to you. Okay, there are people like this. There are. Pros and cons. Pros, on the basis of patient safety, it's your duty to report an impaired physician, PA, MA, nurse, anybody that has their hands on the patient. It's your duty. Cons. Only if I could remain completely anonymous. And it's interesting, state laws differ on this. You can be a whistleblower, you can turn in a healthcare professional for impairment, and you can remain totally anonymous. In some states, and in others, you must be exposed. The person who you're accusing has a right to know their accuser. And sometimes the state laws, is all just different all over the country. The state law is equivocal and they leave it to the healthcare system or the medical board or the nursing board or whoever to decide whether your name has to be revealed. So whether you vote yes or no, always keep in mind you need to know what the consequences are gonna be. Let's say you report the head doc in your clinic or your office, and they're exonerated, you're fired. I mean, you shouldn't be. You should be protected by whistleblower laws, but they'll trump up something that you're inadequate, and they'll fire you. You know what people are like, retribution. So you need to know before you would do this what the situation is. And I understand that, but I'm still going to ask you to vote. Would you report, physician, friend, colleague, MA, PA, anybody works in your practice who touches patients, who seems impaired by alcohol, drugs, or illness? 80% of you would do it. 20% of you would be a little hesitant. And there are gray areas, right? So I'll tell you something that happened in my hospital, not in our derm practice in the university, but in our hospital, our VA hospital. There was someone who worked not in derm, but in the clinic like right across the hall. And he would bring patients all the time to derm if they had something. He didn't want to follow the rules and put in a consult. He'd just bring the patient across, and I felt sorry. And, he seemed to me to be losing it, like he just wasn't communicating properly. He seemed to be mentally not right. So I pulled over his fellow, and I said, "This was like in May or June. It's towards the end of the year." So the fellow had worked with this physician for almost a year now. I said, "Is Doctor So and So like okay?" And he said, "You know." I really don't think he is. He's forgetting things. He's asking questions that are elementary, like he doesn't remember. So you have two choices at that point. I could turn him in, and I knew I could remain anonymous. So I could have anonymously turned him in. The fellow hadn't done it. No one else he worked with had done it. Or I could go to him. And I chose to go to him directly. And I've known him for many years, and I said, look, you just don't seem to be thinking right. Are you feeling okay? Well, I, you know, he equivocated, equivocated, and I kept pressing a little longer, and he said, yeah, I think I'm having TIAs, and I'm losing it. And in fact, that's what his problem was. He was having residual cumulative defect from lots of little mini, mini strokes, not just TIAs. He actually had stroke evidence on radiologic thing. So that's another option if you have someone that you think is impaired. It's not ignore it, turn them in. You can approach them directly. And you can be very straightforward. Look, I'm going to have to turn you in unless you seek help. I smell alcohol in your breath. I think that's the more humane way to do it. But I applaud those of you, and I didn't give you that option. If I did, I bet a lot of you would have voted for it. But I applaud those of you who are willing for patient's sake, to take some action. Uh, Taking no action, I don't think is right, but if I had given you that option of going to them directly, I bet you all would have voted for that. So that's just another option. Here's what the survey was, 80% almost said yes. And if you tack on another 9% for the it depends, that's 87%. So the majority felt they would do that. If you're sure a certain procedure will help a patient, Is it acceptable to be less aggressive about describing the risks in order to get the patient's informed consent? Ooh, that's a tough one. So this is a kind of contrived one, but you're divorced and between child support and alimony, you have no money. Your patient wants a Fraxel to correct the features of aging face, but she's concerned if there's any potential for infection or scar. Oh, you get a quick couple grand. She wants it. Why scare her away? Oh, there's no risk at all. You know, don't worry about it. Let's do it now. So pros and cons. Too much information doesn't really help ensure an informed decision because the patients don't have the education or intellectual capacity to understand details and nuances. Or con, people should always be trusted with the full truth, nothing but the truth, risk versus benefits. What do you think? Is it acceptable? Yes. To be less aggressive describing the risks in order to get the patient's informed consent, or no, it's not acceptable. Okay, wow, 92% said no. It's not acceptable to be less aggressive. But a few of you, you know, if you know it's gonna do them some good, maybe you downplay it a little bit. Again, no right or wrong, but 92% of you said no, it's not acceptable. Survey said 80 plus 5, 85%. So you're right in line with the, the national consensus. I think you could all, even those majority of you who voted no, think of an instance where you might want to do that. There's, there's a way to sort of bend that envelope, push that envelope a little bit. But The majority said no, majority said no nationally. Is it ever acceptable to prescribe a a placebo to a patient who doesn't require treatment but is adamant about receiving it? I'm gonna give you a good example. Here's a good example. The patient comes in with this. I'm suicidal because these insects are crawling on my skin. Look. Here they are, all kinds of species. Look, you can see them. Help me, I read about ivermectin. Can you give me ivermectin? You know damn well he doesn't have insects. you know ivermectin kills most insects. Would you give him ivermectin? Pros and cons, placebo treatments can be very powerful and can make the patient feel better or even lead to a cure. We all know that is true. Or cons, don't let the tail wag the dog. Let the patient go elsewhere before prescribing something you know deep down inside is not needed, but you don't know it won't help, but it's not needed. You're gonna prescribe a medication and you know it's not needed. What do you think? Yes, it's acceptable to prescribe an active medicine, not just a sugar pill, active medicine to a patient who doesn't require treatment but wants it, or no, it's not acceptable to do that. Okay, almost, not quite equal, but you know, 60, 40. So 60% of you said yes, 40% of you, you're gonna hold your ground and you're not gonna let the tail wag the dog. I love that. So here's what the national survey said. Take 9%, put it on each one of those. 43% said, yes, it's acceptable. And 57% said, no, it's not acceptable. You know, it's a close call. There is a power in the placebo. And, you know, when I did my tropical talk the other day, someone came up to me afterwards and said, well, how about doing a biopsy? And then you can look them straight in the eye. For, for a patient with... Uh, Uh, delusions of parasitosis. Do a biopsy, then you can look them straight in the eyes and say, well, I biopsied and there's nothing there. You could do the same thing with prescribing a medicine like ivermectin. Well, look, I gave you the biggest, baddest bug killer I can give, and you're still having problems, so it's not a bug. It's something else, right? So you could do that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. Or you could say, hit the road jack. I mean, it's fine. any which way you want to you wanna do it, there is power in placebo. But remember, first do no harm. That's part of the medical ethics creed. So you don't want to do any harm by doing this. If you don't do any harm, I see no problem in it. For those of you who wouldn't do it, I think that's perfectly acceptable. Either way is fine. Interesting split. This happened to me. Is it ever acceptable to breach a patient's confidentiality if you know the patient's health status, like a communicable disease, could be harming others? I'm gonna give you what happened to me. This happened to me, real life. Every state in the union, syphilis and gonorrhea is reportable, so you're breaching their confidence by law, but herpes is not. You see Joe with active genital herpes who boasts about having unprotected sex with women for the express purpose of passing it on to them. He's getting revenge because somebody gave him herpes. You find out he's going to be start dating your next door neighbor's daughter. Would you breach his patient confidentiality? Pros and cons, I would seek legal advice first, but eventually I would form whomever I needed to to protect others. Cons, if the law doesn't require disclosure, then it's none of my business, and it's illegal to breach patient confidentiality. Again, there's merit to both ways of looking at this. What do you think? Is it acceptable to breach patient confidentiality in order to protect someone else from harm? Yes, it's acceptable. No, I will not breach patient confidentiality, even if I'm putting someone in harm's way. Make it your brother or sister. Oh, maybe not that close. A neighbor. (laughs) Okay, 32% said no, it is not acceptable. 68% of you would put yourself out on the limb. Here's the way it went. Yes, 63% in the national survey. Almost exactly mimicking here. And if you add half of the 23% of people who wouldn't give an opinion, it's well over 70% would. And then there are still some who wouldn't. So this actually happened to me. That story is my story. I took care of a patient with genital herpes who hadn't told me and then finally blurted out he was deliberately having, whenever he could, unprotected sex, hoping to pass herpes on. That's not a lethal disease, I can't report him. If, that, if he'd been HIV and deliberately having unprotected sex, to. Give people HIV, that's a potentially lethal disease. And under Texas law, I could break his confidentiality. But herpes, generally speaking, is not a lethal disease. And then he was gonna start dating the daughter of my two-doors-down neighbor. Not next door, but the next door to next door. What do you do? So I didn't want to break the patient confidentiality medically but I wanted to protect the daughter. She grew up with my one of my kids. I mean, I know her. And so I got the word to the parents somehow that I didn't think he was really a nice guy. You know, he just wasn't a nice guy. And ended up, she didn't go out with him. So I protected her without breaching the confidentiality. And if I had to have breached her his confidentiality, I would have sought legal advice first. I probably would have done it. Do you feel you can be unbiased in your prescribing habits if you accept lunches from pharmaceutical reps? <laughs> OK, let's talk about product theaters at SDPA, you know, or the cookies or the sandwiches that come to your office, yada, yada, yada. Pros, I am outraged. In other words, I could feel unbiased. And insulted at the notion that a pen or a tuna sandwich might change my prescribing habits. Con, no, the evidence clearly demonstrates we're kidding ourselves if we believe that prescribing bias can't be induced even by small gifts, like a pen or a tuna sandwich. Okay, can you be unbiased if you accept lunches from pharmaceutical reps or... Industry. Yes, I can still be unbiased, no way, I can't be unbiased. Okay, 85% of you say yes, you can be unbiased, and 15% of you are honest. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's fine. What, what did the survey say? The survey said 72% said yes, I can be unbiased, and yet another 4% from the undecided, and that's 76% said yes, they could be unbiased. I will tell you, there's actually a fair amount of research that says that even small gifts do influence your prescribing habits, but you know, come on, a tuna sandwich. You use your own judgment. Um, I'll go through the rest really quick. Do you feel conflicted about reporting or investigating? A patient you think is a victim of domestic abuse. That's my patient. She's coming in for AKs and basal cells. And she came in once like this, and I said, what happened? She said, I, um, I tripped over the stairs in my house. Really? Right in the eyes? It's kind of an interesting pattern. No, I, I just tripped. Now I take care of her husband, and he's a mean son of a bitch. He's just a mean demeanor. You know you have patients like that. You just don't like them, they're mean. So I had suspicions. Pros, I may do more harm than good because the agencies that investigate this aren't so great. Or cons, being conflicted is okay, but I have to report. Not reporting is inexcusable. What do you think? If you saw my patient, use that as a prototype. Would you feel conflicted and probably not report that patient, or would you, no, not feel conflicted, and I'd report that, the potential domestic abuse. And 76% of you said you'd feel conflicted. 24% of you said, no, you wouldn't feel conflicted. You know, I actually reported. And he'd beaten her up you know, what it was worth. She wouldn't press charges, so there's nothing that can be done. Uh, 80% said no, they wouldn't feel conflicted. In other words, they would report something like that as domestic abuse. Okay, this is the last one. Should physician assisted, and it doesn't affect us directly, but I'm just curious what your opinion is. I will tell you I've done this exact same thing. Some questions were a little different. At Yale and at the University of Mississippi, and I got totally opposite answers. So let's see what you think. Should physician-assisted suicides be allowed? Patients with terminal illness, pro, yes. Lying and misery should be allowed to control their own fate. Con, this is physician-assisted homicide. We swore an oath to do no harm. We should not be judge, jury, and executioner. Very strong opinions on this subject, held nationwide. So what do you think? Should physician-assisted suicides be allowed? Yes or no? Oh, my God. (laughs) Very creative music choice back there. Okay. 75% of you said yes. 25% of you said no. No right or wrong. Here's what the survey said. Half and half. But it's interesting, it's interesting, this same thing, remember the survey's been done multiple times, 10 years ago to the same kind of set of people in the same distribution of different specialties said favorable towards this was only 20%. Ten years later, it's almost half, well it is half if you include half of the it depends people, it's, you know, 40, it's 58% and you had a larger proportion, 75% who are in favor of it. This is one of those shifting sort of things, and society is shifting, and so are we. We're adapting. I'm not saying it's wrong to be opposed to physician-assisted suicide, but this is the trend of being, at least looking at it with some favorable light. My close, I think this is a good guide. This is the Hippocratic Oath, and it says, medicine is of all the arts the most noble. I followed that system of regimen which according to my ability and judgment, I consider for the benefit of my patience and I will abstain from anything that's deleterious. Martin Luther King said our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. We've talked about a few trivial things but a lot of things that do matter. And again, I've tried to stay fairly neutral on most of these right or wrong is very difficult on many of these questions, but I want to at least thank you for thinking about difficult issues. Thank you very much for your kind attention. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.